Hello, hello. In this episode, you will learn about the power of seaweed. Are algae the source of the packaging of the future? Apart from the material, how is the innovative packaging startup Notpla inspiring loads of consumers and companies for their edible packaging solutions? You will hear from Lise Hansinger, the CFO and COO of Notpla, a company based in the UK that has raised over 6 million. Beforehand, Lise was working in private equity, investing in renewable energy, including financing the first grid-connected solar in the Philippines and kickstarting their nation's race for solar energy. Notpla is one of the coolest startups in the sustainable packaging space with a fantastic brand and lots of momentum. We are covering a lot of ground in this interview. I'm very excited to share this with you, so let's jump right in. You're listening to season two on plastic alternatives. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. For resources and to get involved, visit redtogreen.solutions. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Lise, it's wonderful to have you on the Red to Green podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Marina. I'm very excited to have our chat today. Totally, me too. So let's look at the basics first. What does NOTPLA stand for? What's the meaning of the name? So NOTPLA is not plastic, not PLA. We are something new, something different. We are NOTPLA. And that is exactly what it stands for. And that's what we do. Nice. How did you come up with the idea? If we think about the idea for the company, it actually comes from looking to nature and really looking at the way that nature encapsulates liquids and how we can look to mimic that in a packaging environment. Two founders, Pierre and Rodrigo, when they were at Imperial, they were kind of messing around with different ideas and looking at plastic. And this was before the big plastic packaging, I guess, crisis that we're having now. But just looking at it really from a climate perspective and and knowing that plastic and packaging like that is really carbon intense and trying to see how we could reduce that carbon intensity And this idea of membranes came about because if you look at nature, everything is in a membrane, right? So you look at segments of an orange, it's in a membrane. You look at the cells in your body, they're in a membrane. You look at an egg, that's in a membrane. Then kind of looking to see what existing tech there was around for that. And actually we found a patent from the 1950s from like Unilever that was for fake caviar, tiny little bubbles. And it was made from a similar or like the base seaweed tech that we now have developed and and, and turned into our technology. This idea of having a little bubble made from a seaweed extract. And so that was the combination of those two factors was really what created Notflip from the beginning. Let's move on to pretty much your flagship product, the first product that you got on the market, Oho. So What is OHO packaging specifically and in what situations is it used? Okay, so OHO is our first product, which is like a little bubble of liquid. It's also edible uh, and completely compostable and biodegradable. And we use it for packaging any type of liquid. So literally most liquids work in it. It's actually heat stable, so it isn't impacted by things like that. But what we use it for at the moment most is couple of situations. One is for water and sports drinks at sports events, which is actually 
surprisingly a massive space and that is to replace the plastic bottles and cups that would otherwise be handed out and to give you one example of the impact that's having you look at something like the london marathon would you believe they use seven hundred and fifty thousand bottles every year at wow. a race so those bottles used for five minutes thrown away collected up so we can replace things like that and the other thing we use it for as well is to be a sachet for condiments we did some initial trials with Hellman's last year for ketchup and mayonnaise and for takeaways. And it's something that people don't talk about a lot, but sachets, there's 16 billion ketchup mm. sachets used. That's just ketchup a year in the world. And the little sachets are never recycled. No one does anything with them. They're, they're covered in food. They've got no value. Um, so they go straight in the bin. And half the time you don't even want them. My takeaway comes, I'm like, ah, oh, why do they put yes. sachets in it? <laughs> so we can replace them with, with our material. It's totally natural. And you can put it in the bin with, with the food leftovers. Does Oho have any taste or can, have you experimented with adding taste? Ooh, Oho itself doesn't have any taste. That's actually something we've worked really hard on. The first Ohos did have a bit of a taste and those lucky first tasting volunteers were kind of experiencing slightly strange flavors. Um, <laughs> but no, we've worked really hard over the years to make it completely taste neutral. Uh, I think it's one of the things people are most surprised about when they try one for the first time. They kind of go, oh, uh, and obviously the experience of eating an Oho is quite unique anyway. But then secondly, oh, it doesn't taste like seaweed. You're like, yes, of course it doesn't. But in terms of experimenting with taste, something we haven't really focused on, but it has something we've been asked about from time to time. And we have tried occasionally putting uh, an orange flavoring into it or some other fun flavors. So it's something we're still playing with. Mm -hmm. And does it have any nutritional benefits? Sadly, not really. So I know that seaweed is obviously very good for you, but Oho is so minimal, to be honest, that it doesn't really. It does, of course, have some fiber in it, if anything. But I think you'd have to eat an awful lot of Ohos to get any benefit from that. <laughs> <laughs> Just snacking on Ohos during <laughs> <Yeah>. the day. <laughs> to build startups that change the industry not only requires capital, but also the relevant know-how and valuable connections. Check out our partner Atlantic Food Labs, an early stage investor and venture studio for startups. Founded in 2016, the Berlin-based investor is one of Europe's leading venture firms for food and agriculture, investing in exciting topics such as alternative proteins, water supply, vertical farming, solutions for food waste and carbon reduction. Led by the vision to feed 10 billion people by 2050 in a sustainable and healthy way, Atlantic Food Labs has supported over 20 mission-driven founding teams to launch their ideas. For example, they've invested in Legendary, the cultured milk startup featured in our episode 4, making real cheese without cows. Mush Labs, making meat alternatives from fungi and gorillas designing the future of grocery shopping. And now, back to today's episode. And what other products are you working on apart from Oho? That's a great question. So Oho was our first product and it is a flexible packaging for liquids. But since that, we've moved forward and found other ways to create other types of packaging because long-term Nopla, we want to create a whole range of packaging solutions. 
for different applications. Next, after OHO, we've worked on coatings for paperboard. You might not realize, but when you get one of those cardboard boxes with a salad in it, a press-a-manger or, you know, your Itsu cardboard box, you think, great, it's cardboard, it could be recycled, Mm. but actually it's always coated in plastic or PLA, which makes it non-recyclable. So we've been trying to replace that coating and we're we're nearly there now. And then Mm. after that, we're looking at films other films because obviously OHO is for liquids but can we create a similar kind of plastic replacement film for dry goods and for other liquids that uh, don't work so well in OHO Uh, and that's really our our next stage of the films. Fascinating okay let's look at your business model for a second and then get into the products. So what is your business model are you licensing the technology or are you actually working as a manufacturer? It's a really great question, especially for a business like ours, which is in some ways still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now we are producing products ourselves. Long term, we don't want to be having huge production facilities and producing those things. But we're probably not looking to license the tech anytime soon. Instead, what we see is us going back up the value chain. So if we take something like the the box, the coating for a box right now, we're actually producing our own boxes so we can sell those direct to restaurants and people like that. And that's because we have to kind of prove the market before we mm. can do other things with it. But long term, what we'd like to be doing is selling our coating to a manufacturer of paperboard who can just coat it and sell that paperboard to everybody who makes boxes all over the world. And it's the same with OHO. Right now, we sell little bubbles with water in them for running events or with Lucasade in them for sports events. But longer term, what we'd like to do is sell or lease even the machinery that makes those OHOs to manufacturers. And how are you incorporating the rather short shelf life of these products? Mm. Um, How is that a consideration in the business model? It's uh, interesting. So it's not really, I suppose, so much a consideration in the business model as a consideration in how we pitch this and who we sell this to and where it fits. As you rightly put, that the OHO has a very short shelf life, actually about two weeks, depending on the product inside it. The coatings for paperboard and films actually have a much longer shelf life whilst they're not in contact with any liquids. So, you know, you can store our boxes for a year in your storeroom. It's only once you put the food in that you have to be conscious of that time ticking. And I'm sure you know, as as an expert in food, that's basically because biodegradation happens with three things, with oxygen, with microbes and with liquid, with water rather. So, you know, until we put that water in, it doesn't start degrading. But to get back to the question, it means that we just have to focus on the right markets. Packaging space and food is huge. There are so many different types of packaging for everything. And there is so much of it that is instant consumption. And the question is, why on earth are we using a packaging that lasts 700 years Mm. to package something that needs to be packaged from 9am when the sandwich is made to 12 noon when someone buys it, eats it and chucks it in the bin. So it's for us, it's just about focusing on those instant consumption, food to go, quick use scenarios, which there are mountains of. Mm. Would you consider instant consumption to be the low hanging fruit of sustainability in the packaging space? It's de- it definitely is for us. Yes. It's a funny one because I think people who have a really strong core about sustainability naturally feel that instant consumption is evil mm-hmm. <laughs> and is the thing that we're trying to avoid to have such a I need it now kind of society. But I think what we see is that that is the reality of the world we live in. 
And people are going to continue to want to be able to grab that bottle from a shop when they walk past and have a quick sandwich on the go. Therefore, how can we make it as environmentally benign as possible? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it would be a stretch to want to switch that to a circular system even. I'm obsessed by circular systems, but I agree it's a stretch. Yes. What is your opinion on the role of circularity in packaging? I wish we could do more of it. I think it's so important and it's such the obvious thing. It's like we've all forgotten. We were taught as kids, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm. And it's like everyone just forgot the first two and went straight for recycle. We need to reduce, we need to reuse. But I think in terms of the reality rather than the wish right now, um, circular packaging can be used really well by corporates. And it's something that we do see and we'd like to see more of and we push to see more of so that you can use circular packaging for the back end. So when Unilever is shipping around things, they can use reusable containers to move large things around rather than using disposables there because they have a responsibility and they have systems in place. And the person that circular is most difficult for is the end consumer. So what we're trying to do is make it easy for the end consumer But, you know, someone like a Pret-a-Manger should be able to deal with the concept of getting something in a reusable box and then sending it back. Absolutely. Why have you uh, chosen seaweed and what are the specialties of working with seaweed? Oh, I love that question because we love seaweed. <laughs> we are all about seaweed. So I think seaweed is a fantastic material and I think you'll see more and more packaging being made out of seaweed or it coming up a lot more in the future. Seaweed is fantastic because it's really abundant and it grows really fast. So you can farm it very easily. It environmentally also doesn't have the impacts that some of the other biomaterials used for packaging have because it grows in the ocean. It doesn't need fresh water to grow. And as we all know, water is going to become a big environmental issue later this century. And it doesn't compete with arable land for food crops. You, you can literally grow it under a wind farm. You can grow it in the ocean. We love seaweed from the fact that it's really environmentally sustainable. It obviously also, as it grows, sequesters carbon, so it deacidifies the oceans, which is good. And then in itself, it's just a plant, like I guess like any other, and it has its component parts that are strong. So just like we've been using trees for thousands of years to make paper, seaweed is just another option like that that we just haven't tapped into yet. What are the limits of seaweed? Hmm. I don't know if I know the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have any limits. <laughs> That's why. Perhaps it doesn't have any limits. I don't know. I think there's a lot of opportunity with seaweed, honestly. I mean, like any natural ingredient, you have to be careful with the sourcing of it. Just like with forestry, we now have the sustainable forestry certification. You want to be making sure the seaweed that you're using has been sustainably sourced. And we as NOPLA are members of various seaweed consortiums to work with other people to ensure that happens. But I think as time goes on, we'll see more and more seaweed farming versus seaweed harvesting. Because right now, <clears throat> Most of the seaweed collected globally is just harvested, meaning it's just pulled up because it's just there. And, and in general, at the moment, I think that works fine because seaweed is very abundant, but it can just upset ecosystems if you pull it out too fast or in an aggressive way. And there have been cases, I think, in Scotland where it's upset local population balances in the ocean. So you do want to be careful about that. I think that is It's not really a limitation of seaweed. It's just more like a conscious flag that you want to be thinking about where your seaweed is coming from. We work very closely with a seaweed farm in 
northern France that has really sustainable practices. And as I said, I think going forward, you'll see more and more seaweed being actively grown and farmed so that it can be sure that it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. And if it's harvested from the ocean, then it also is exposed to the common pollutants like PCBs, pesticides, etc. Do, do you measure the amount of pollutants or how do you deal with that? So for us, it isn't a huge problem because we use an extract from seaweed. So we process the seaweed to remove the molecules that we need from it and therefore leave behind the waste product, which is commonly then used as a fertilizer or other things. But it is interesting because, as I said, we work closely with these seaweed farms and we sometimes get sent seaweed samples. And it's shocking how much plastic you find. You can just dig your hand into a bag of broken up seaweed and you're like, oh, there's some bits. It definitely is there. But yes, we extract, so we don't have any of those pollutants, which is good for us. But I think in the future, we are looking to see if we can use more of that waste seaweed that's currently going to fertilizer in, in incorporating that in more of our products to be more holistic in the seaweed we use. We're looking at creating paper out of that seaweed as just another of many side projects that we work on. <laughs> and, you know, in that case, then it will become more interesting to see how we extract those things from it. Mm -hmm. You were talking about carbon sequestration beforehand. Can you elaborate on that and also talk about the full carbon impact of your product? We are quite interested in this and we've done some basic life cycle analyses of the product. And we've got data now that shows that if you compare our sachet to a common sachet, we use 70% less carbon uh, than a plastic sachet to produce. So massively reducing the amount of energy that's gone into making that product. In terms of the material itself, obviously seaweed grows, absorbs carbon, gets turned into something else, biodegrades, releases carbon back out. So that should be a net cycle. There's bits of energy that go off. I think what I meant in terms of the carbon sequestration of the seaweed is that obviously having a large body of seaweed in the ocean is at any one time storing carbon from the atmosphere in it. And as you grow more seaweed farms, intensively and actively, you therefore increase the amount of biomass in the ocean, which means that at any one time, you've got more carbon dragged out of the air and the sea and the seawater around it. So it's about increasing that base over time as the amount of seaweed we're using goes up. So then let's look at your other products. You were mentioning the coating for paperboard. Can you elaborate? What is the current industry standard for that? What is the problem with it? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, we are looking to create a coating that's made from similar ingredients to the OHO. It's obviously a slightly different blend, but again, still seaweed and plants. The industry at the moment has a couple of stages. In the basic paperboard itself, they often add additives to the pulp. To, to give it waterproofing. And those additives can be things like synthetic rubber or things that you might have heard of like AKD, which are chemicals and usually petrochemical derived that give it new, new processes. Not always, but that goes into the paper itself. And then on top of that, they add a coating if they want it to be really waterproof and greaseproof. And that coating will either be plastic, so PE, or often nowadays people are using PLA, which is a bioplastic. So... Both of those things are plastics, and it means that if you want to uh, try and biodegrade that box, it won't. We actually have some wonderful videos. We test everything in our wormery in the office as a, a first case test. And if you go on our website, you can see, I think, under technology, one of the videos. 
But when we line up like a, a paperboard with plastic on it and PLA against ours, what you see is the worms in ours, they eat the whole thing. But with the other ones, they actually eat the board off the back of the plastic and you get left mm -hmm. with this film that you mm. couldn't even see when you were looking at the box because it's so imperceptible. But there is there a layer of plastic on top of the box. So that's the industry standard. And I think industry standard is, is a good phrase to use because it's what we're trying to do with our coating. We've worked really hard to try and get it to fit in with the standard industry practices. With OHO, we actually designed a bespoke machine to create the OHO uh, because it was required and hadn't been done before. But I think that has benefits in some ways. It creates IP, sure, but it's also very intensive. And anyone who's tried to make machines before knows that machines are hard. So with the coating, we're really trying to fit in with the car and standard machinery they have so that it can just be applied just like a plastic. And hopefully then it'll be able to roll much more quickly and have much wider impact. Mm -hmm. Is it again the seaweed? Yes. So we mostly use brown seaweed and, as I said, some other plant gums and extracts, mostly from trees. Oh, what is the difference? Is there a difference between the seaweed you use for Oho and the seaweed? Yes, we do actually use a different species. There are thousands of species of seaweeds and they all have similar but different properties. An interesting thing we found is that we can technically make an oho out of most types of kelp. Most brown seaweeds can make an oho, but if we use specific varieties, we get much better properties. In terms of the amount of oxygen barrier and water vapor transmission rate that we reduce, it really depends on which species and also how you extract it, so how you're processing that material. You know, talking about uh, the paper cardboards really shows the complexity in the whole packaging industry and also the complexity from the viewpoint of consumers because just going for cardboard packaging again can be a trap, <laughs> which is so mean. And so what would you say are similar other misconceptions within packaging where things look sustainable but they actually aren't sustainable if you look a bit further oh you're you're so right it's an absolute minefield and it's one of our biggest i guess bugbears and and one of my biggest hopes for the industry for the food space and for the packaging industry is that we get better communication with customers uh, with consumers about what things are and that we get some better legislation, honestly, because it really comes from the legislature and what they're saying uh, different terms mean. So I think the big one, the big elephant in the room is the term biodegradable hmm. and compostable because technically you can have a product that labels itself as compostable, but it means that it's industrially compostable. And industrially compostable is not what you or I think about being compostable. So I think if I told you, and you've probably seen it at, at events and, and festivals and football games, they give you a, a cup and it says on it, I am not a plastic cup. Mm -hmm. I am biodegradable. And, and it looks like plastic and you're like, wow, that's so amazing. Uh, and you think I could take that cup home, plant it in my garden and it'll disappear in a few weeks. That is not the case because that is a plastic. It's just a bioplastic. But to be processed, it needs to be treated in an industrial composting facility. And there are not very many of those in the UK and Europe. And that's the big problem. I think for me, that is really misleading to consumers. Whereas our product, when we say it's compostable, we mean that it's home compostable. And you can take that product and you can put it in your garden and it will disappear in four to six weeks and it will completely break down. 
So I think there's a real something that needs to change there in terms of the labeling to allow consumers to know the difference between those things. These are these little intricacies that people just don't know about, and it's really hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And do you see that a more sustainable packaging future includes bioplastics? Uh, That's a hard question. I think it does. Yes. I think bioplastics are a step in the right direction. Anything that gets us away from a dependence on petroleum and gets the big oil companies to move away from that is a good thing. But I think it will require a big investment in infrastructure in terms of industrial composting to really make those processable. But I think because they do offer really good alternatives to plastic for the things that we can't do, you know, the things that require longer shelf life, I do definitely think they have a place in our future. We just need to invest as societies in being able to process them properly. Exactly. Yeah. And do you have any specific opinion on PLA, which is pretty much the most well-known type of bioplastic? They need to be a bit more transparent about what they are and to also explain that they are a bioplastic, meaning they are a plastic. It is a plastic. It will degrade in the same way plastic does unless you treat it specially. So kind of giving people that information that they need to go forward. Mm, Exactly. I mean, PLA, just to jump in, also has to be treated carefully. The thing I mentioned about using crop and arable land um, to produce plastics It's one of the big um, questions there's always been about the PLA, which is why I don't think any packaging is a single answer to the solution to this, these problems. I don't think we'll just see one solution because, you know, if we try to replace all the packaging in the world with the PLA, I don't know if we'd have any space left for, for growing crops to eat. They're mostly, it's often made from cornstarch. So it needs the same land that is needed to grow your bread. <laughs> mm. What interesting innovations do you see in using the oceans to create packaging for the future. Is there something apart from seaweed that you find is noteworthy? Hmm, Interesting question. Well, there are a bunch of other packagings that are looking at, I suppose, well, there are different types of seaweed for one. We're focused on brown seaweed, but a lot of people are using red seaweed as well, which are technically completely different biological phylums if you look at them. There are also people using crustaceans using mollusks and you can actually grind down the shells of crustaceans to create a product called chitosan which can be used in packaging so that's quite an interesting uh, space to look at but other than that i think seaweed is the main plant that grows in in the ocean and it's wildly different and there are many variants so it in itself will lead to a lot of different types of packaging And I think in terms of innovation, I I joked about growing seaweed under wind farms, but I think that is an innovation because at the moment, nothing is really done with that space, that sea underneath those wind turbines. But equally, aquaponics and growing seaweed under fish farms is also an innovation that is quite useful because the fish actually fertilize the seaweed Mm -hmm. themselves, as you can imagine, just by existing. So there are lots of little things like that that's quite interesting in the in the ocean space. For listeners who are not familiar with aquaponics, can you just describe the system a bit more? In the the simplest form is that you have fish and, and fish poop and their poop is fertilizer for the things that grow underneath it. And the things that grow underneath it oxygenate the water so that the fish live and grow very well. Hopefully that was that simple enough or too simple. Yes, that was simple enough. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, then uh, we can continue with the the product. Is there something regarding your coding for paperboard that we haven't touched upon that we should talk about? 
One additional thing to mention about our coating for paperboard is that we obviously are working very closely with suppliers of the paperboard that we coat or, or with the pulp in the cases of molded fiber packaging to ensure that it doesn't have any of the additives that I mentioned at the beginning. So not only are we replacing our coating instead of a PE or PLA, but we want to make sure the products that we sell have no additives in them. It's actually surprisingly hard to buy paperboard with no additives. You have to really drill in and, and factories can't believe it. So any actual final product that we'll be selling on our website and actually our shop is going live, I think in a few weeks to sell to restaurants, these boxes, we have ensured that our product is fully sustainable the whole way through. So there are no additives in that paperboard. Mm. Being sustainable in that case also means being more healthy, probably. So what is the potential health impact of the additives in, and obviously the, the plastic coating? Yeah, I think right now there is very little information out there of what plastics do to our health, but a lot of people are concerned about it. And actually, there's been a big thing in the US recently where they've banned PFAs. PFAs are one of the, the, the main additives that goes into bagasse trays, which are often used with a PLA liner and sold as, as biopackaging. And, and they banned that because they realized that PFAs have negative impacts on human health. It's just an example of one of the unknown additives that are in paper packaging that no one talks about. And obviously, they do leach into the environment, but also potentially into your food. So we just think it's safer to remove anything that isn't natural from that packaging. What is bagasse? Bagasse is um, made from sugarcane. It is actually the waste product of making sugar. So when you take the cane, you squeeze it down. That's how they squeeze out the sugar from inside. And that rough material that's left behind is called bagasse. Now we can take that because it's very fibrous. It's a naturally very good product for making packaging, for making paper. So for example, plates made from bagasse, the lining would contain PFA and therefore would actually be harmful or unsustainable also? Sort of. It's not a lining. So often bagasse trays are not lined at all. They put the additives directly in there and then they mold it. I try to explain to people, we think now that paper can do incredible things. You think, wow, paper, I can put sloppy curry into a, a paper box and nothing happens to it. You're like, no, if it had no additives, that would be just like your papier-mâché that you made as a kid. That would disintegrate. Trays with no additives really can't tolerate water at all, which is why when we take all the additives out, we have to add our coating to it because without that, it would be go soggy so quickly. Mm. Did, that, did that make sense? Yes, yes. Oh, how frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, absolutely. Then the other product that you're working on is a film, right? Yes. And can you specify what that film is used for? Sure. We have two, two flagship films we're working on and hopefully plenty more after that. But our two first films, we have one that will be a standard kind of plastic replacement that is heat sealable. And that's really important because plastic has this property that it melts when you put heat on it. And a lot of natural materials don't do that because they're structured differently. But to be able to be used in a normal kind of sachet making factory, you want to be able to be heat sealable. So our first film is heat sealable uh, and we've been working very hard on that and it's clear and flexible. That could be used for any kind of packet, really. You could use it for nuts and seeds. We 
looked at rice and things like that in the food space. We even talking to a dog food company about packaging their dog foods in it. It has limited oxygen barriers, so we don't want to focus on things that require that plastic packaging to give them a longer shelf life, relatively ambient. So even if you think about a, a case of tomatoes, a punnet of tomatoes, and it often has that clear plastic packaging around it, perfect example of somewhere where you don't need it to be plastic. You could be our film, heat sealed. So that's one of the films. The other film is actually water soluble, which is a niche, but a very important niche because it can replace things like PVOH. Those are the kind of plastics that go around your dishwasher tablet or that go around your washing machine liquid, those little packets. That's in a slightly earlier stage of development, but we're working with a few companies testing that out right now. And basically it dissolves into the water completely and disappears. And what is the shelf life of the film? Still to be determined, but much longer than OHO, whilst it's not in contact with water. Once it's in contact with a liquid, I think it will have a similar shelf life to OHO, which is that two to three weeks. So what we imagine this being used is we produce a large roll of this film and it can be stored in a factory in a dry environment for, and as I said, we haven't determined that yet, but let's say six months. And then as it's produced, it'll be made into these packets, which will then go to the consumer, but do need to be used if it's wet in a relatively short period of time. If it's dry goods, as long as it's stored in a dry environment, it, it can have a much longer shelf life. And have you already tried how easy it is to print on them? Ooh, printing is the be all and end all. So yes, we have. The good thing is the films are much easier to print on than the OHOs. I guess, update, we have actually managed to print on OHOs very recently for the first time in four years. It's pretty basic, but the challenge really with printing on natural packaging or a packaging that has some kind of porosity to it is that you need to use a natural ink. You need to use an edible ink and you need something that is both edible, but can also adhere correctly to the packaging and doesn't just wipe off. So we've actually spent the last year developing our own bespoke edible inks that do just that. With the film, it's a bit simpler because it's a dry film and it's flat. So printing on flat things is obviously easier too. But at the moment, we don't get quite the granularity of printing that you can get on a plastic packaging. But I don't think that's going to be an issue at all. We think that's something that should be very easy to solve with a bit more development time. Do you have any thoughts on adhesives and anything that you've been encountering in terms of the struggles of finding good adhesives? Yeah, glues are really hard. Adhesives, uh, it's very difficult to find natural adhesives that work. So it's, it's a good question. And um, struggling to find an adhesive that we can use for, for instance, for our folded box that isn't in some way petroleum-based is, is a really big challenge. And it's why with the films, we've been so keen to make sure that we can get that heat sealability. How do you see the role of edible packaging within a sustainable packaging system, does it even have any focus for you? So I think edible packaging is in some ways a bit of a niche. It has its challenges. It's difficult for the packaging to be edible because it usually needs to be then packaged in something else, thus defeating the point for hygiene purposes. I think that the, the joy of edible packaging is that it really explains to the consumer that that packaging is truly natural because if your body can process it, so can the environment. So I think that is really why we've had such kind of popularity with that. And, and it's been great because it really has pushed corporates to talk to us. We've got to a, a world where people expect packaging to be plastic. So I think 
the biggest thing that we have is trying to explain to people that natural packaging is very different from these kind of man-made packagings mm. and that they do have their own shelf life inbuilt, uh, whereas plastic doesn't really have a shelf life. And, and I have to remind them that that's why they're here, because the problem is, is that plastic doesn't have a shelf life. It's about reminding corporates of what they actually need. And we talk about really uh, matching our packaging to packaging needs of the product rather than essentially going for gold plated. That's really what we've done with plastic. We've just gone, ah, oh, this gold stuff is really cheap. Let's just coat everything in gold. But mm. then you're actually like, hmm, but imagine gold was actually expensive because we obviously aren't really taking the true cost of plastic into the price of plastic. Mm. So the stuff is really expensive. Do you still want to gold plate everything? Oh no, I didn't actually need to gold plate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. If you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest in? So, I mean, obviously not blur, <laughs> but I think you don't want that answer. So <laughs> the obvious one, the obvious yeah. answer. I think it's interesting. I think, as I said, there is lots going on in our space, but uh, personally, I've, I still have a lot of love for the renewable energy space and I'd probably look to do something either in batteries or, or solar. What upcoming packaging innovations or trends will be especially interesting for the food industry? I think natural packaging is happening and it's here. And I think anyone who's not yet engaged with it or come across it as an industry needs to really get behind it and learn about it. So that's anyone working with seaweed and plants and not creating a bioplastic from a truly natural packaging. What are magazines, books or other resources you would recommend to listeners? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, your podcast, for one. Um, <laughs> if you want to specifically learn about packaging, there is a book from quite a few years ago now called Why Shrink, Wrap a Cucumber. And I think this book is quite a useful insight into why plastic can actually be useful. I actually forgot the number, but I think most cucumbers you eat are something like actually 14 months old, would you believe? Which is like kind of gross, but kind of amazing mm. for food waste. But with growing consumer interest in health and not wanting to eat food that's 14 months old and, and freshness, I think we're going to find other ways to deal with food waste. We now have very sophisticated algorithms and modeling systems that can allow us to really make sure we get just in time production and manage things correctly. Yeah, I think plastic packaging will wane over time. How can listeners support you? Oh, nice question. It would be great if you could follow us. We're quite active on Instagram and Facebook. So we're just not notpla, N-O-T-P-L-A. We actually had a great success story where somebody reading our Instagram went and talked to their local sushi business and said, have you thought about replacing those little plastic fishies that you have in, in your sushi with a notpla? If you are a food business, by all means, go on to notpla and you can find our shop or contact us and you can buy our sachets. Oh, where are you active and what uh, areas of the world? At the moment, the UK. Sadly, not anywhere else. Although in terms of actually sporting events, we have now got partners in Europe and Australia who, once sports events pick up again, will be organizing water uh, replacements for races with OHOs. So if you're organizing a sports event, yep, get in touch. And in any of those regions, UK, Europe or Australia, we can do that. Well, Lise, it's been a pleasure to talk to you on Red to Green. Oh, it's been amazing. Thank you for your really insightful questions. It's been great. If you like Red to Green, remember to subscribe and share it with your colleagues or friends who could be interested. To volunteer in industry research, marketing or writing articles, check out redtogreen.solutions. There you will also find resources mentioned in the episodes. 
let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.